Hey, church family and friends, how are you? You okay? Good morning to you. Glad to be with you. We are going to dive into the book of Luke together. And so, if you have a Bible, I encourage you to open it up to the book of Luke. If you don't have one, um, there should be one on a row near you you could get. There's also uh, tons of apps on your phone. You can pull out uh, the Bible there. Uh, we use a version called the English Standard Version. And so, if you want to find that, follow along. It'll be helpful for you. Because we really seek to let the Bible kind of do the talking and uh, learn from God's Word. And so we'll be referring to it a lot. But we are, as we plug through uh, this book, uh, we have been going at the, at the book of Luke for over a year now. And we find ourselves in chapter 20. So we'll be in chapter 20, verses 1 through 18. And I'm only going to read verses 1 through 8. But... The passage we'll be tackling today are verses 1 through 18. So Luke chapter 20. And we'll read, I'll read verses 1 through 8. And then I'll pray and then we'll dive in. Luke chapter 20, verse 1. One day... As Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us by what authority you do these things. Or, who is it that gave you this authority? He answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, If if we say from heaven, he'll say, why didn't you believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they're convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Let's pray. Father, we stop and we bow in this moment because not for one moment will you forsake your children. We are desperate and needy and we are hopeful because you overcame the grave. You overcame sin, Satan, and death. And Father, right now I just ask that there would be just the bowing of the heart. Whether we followed you for most of our lives or whether the jury's still out on whether we will walk with you. I ask God that you would bow every heart low. And you would convince us of your absolute authority. You would convince us of your amazing power and your infinite love, your mighty mercy, your inexhaustible knowledge, your immeasurable understanding. And I pray that as we focus our gaze upon your authority, it would be such a comfort to us that we would have a confidence as we leave here to follow you with all of our lives and that you will use us to spread your name. So please come. For the sake of your name, come. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, tonight's the Super Bowl. Any of you guys going to watch this thing? Say, it's, uh, it's a big event I hear. And uh, so, yeah, I'll be watching it. I don't know if you know the two teams. Do we have the Patriots that are in there? Do we have? Okay, there we go. And we have the Eagles who are there. Okay, good. So pretty much no one cares. So um, we're going to watch the Super Bowl and we don't care. Um, Patriots versus the Eagles. That's what's going to happen tonight. And what's usually the case with the Patriots is all their opponents regularly talk about how uh, they create this game plan that's just hard to understand, hard to 
plan for, and inevitably, when the opposing team gets there, they're going to see a look that they did not expect. But here's something that I think that we all can expect. We all can expect that although there'll be exciting plays and there'll be controversial calls, every single one of the plays will happen inside the lines, at least the ones that count. The lines are there to create a sense of clarity and boundary. And I don't care if they throw the prettiest pass to the greatest receiver and it's the most amazing catch on the planet. If it happens outside the lines, it doesn't matter for the game. It's out of bounds. The lines matter. The rules of the game matter. People hate it when rules are fuzzy. All I have to say to diehard NFL fans is, what is a catch? And they'll be like, oh, just hate this conversation. I've lost a game because they can't tell me what a catch is. You think it's like pretty basic, you know. You throw this thing, it's oblong, but you're supposed to catch it, you know. Surely we can figure out what a catch is, but not so much. And why does that bother people? It's because where the rules are clear, we delight in the game. Where they're fuzzy, it frustrates us. People get fired, teams get angry when the lines get blurred. The lines are the authority. And people delight in the game because there are rules. We would not have a winner and a loser tonight were the lines and the rules not in place. But we will have a winner tonight. Like them or not, it's going to happen. And it's because the rules of the game are clear. And the authority and those boundaries are set. And here's what I want to say. Jesus is telling us this in Luke chapter 20. Authority actually makes us happier. Authority is good. Authority is a gift. And not only what makes games enjoyable, but authority is what makes life enjoyable. So Jesus is going to tell us in Luke chapter 20, he's going to tell us three things. He's going to, one, he's going to establish his authority. Two, Jesus is going to tell the consequences of rejecting his authority. And then he's also going to speak to the rewards of submitting to his authority. He is, is establishing his authority, what happens to those who reject his authority, and what does it look like? All the rewards and joy that come from submitting to his authority. So let's dive in. As we look at verses 1 through 8, they're going to help us understand Jesus establishing his authority. So he says, chapter 20, verse 1. One day Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel. The gospel is the good news. That sinners can be forgiven of their sins by trusting in, at that time, the coming Messiah. We now know him as Jesus Christ, the one who fulfilled all of the promises that were given to the Jewish people. That one would come who would right all wrongs, establish his kingdom and forgive sinners and allow them to be reconciled to God rather than to be his enemies. This was good news. And he would go into the temple and he would stand up as the authority and he would teach and he would preach and people would listen. And it says in the verse prior to this that they were hanging on his very words. What happened was the religious authorities, it says here they are the chief priests, the scribes and the elders, they did not like it. What gives you the right, Jesus, to speak with authority? What gives you the right, a few chapters earlier, to go into the temple and kind of clean house, acting as if this is your house? What gives you the right to speak with such authority? What gives you the right to ride in like you're a king and to receive praise from people? What gives you the right? Because they knew. They knew all of these things were spelling that he was God himself. That he believed that he was the Messiah. And that's what he was teaching. And they hated it. What gives you the authority to speak that way Jesus? And so. They said in verse 2. Tell us by what authority do you do these things? Or who is it that gave you this authority? 
And he said, let me ask you a question. Jesus is brilliant. And he says this. Now you tell me before I tell you. Once again, what gives him the ability to just kind of take control and yet they follow him? Do you see that? No, no, no. I want you to answer me now. They didn't do that. Okay. Because they were, their authority was from the people around them. They were terrified by this scene. You get the scene, right? Jesus is here teaching with authority. They come in. What gives you the right to do this? All the people around watching what's going to happen. And so Jesus says, now you tell me. Was the baptism of John, now this is John the Baptist. John the Baptist that is not speaking to a denomination like John the Methodist or John the Presbyterian. There's not a lot of those Johns. John the Baptist describes what he did. John baptized sinners, calling them to repent and to trust in the coming Messiah, who we now see is on the scene. He was the prophet that went before Jesus that said, Jesus is the one that you should worship, follow, and who fulfills all the Old Testament. And so, you can imagine they didn't like what John the Baptist was saying, so Jesus points their direction that way. And he says this, was the baptism of John from heaven, that is, from God, was God the one that gave John this message and authority, or from man? Now, they feel stuck. You watch them kind of convene, and they all circle up like in a huddle. And they say in verse 5, if we say from heaven, he will say, well, then why didn't you believe him? Okay, we can't do that then. Okay, verse 6. But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. That sounds like a bad option too. So, they did what all good politicians do. They give a non-answer. And they say, so they answered that they did not know where it came from, thinking they would be safe. And Jesus says, well, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. What's he saying? I have so much authority, I don't have to tell you anything. And I definitely don't have to tell you any more than I've already told you, which is, I am He. I'm the one. Everything that I've been saying is true. I've got complete authority over the temple. I've got complete authority over this message. I've got complete authority to receive praise and honor and glory. I have authority. And if you hit the rewind button on the book of Luke and you go back and you begin to hit, then hit play as you walk through, you just begin to see over and over and over, he has authority. I would argue the book of Mark is written also to proclaim this very thing. He is the son of man who has authority to do what he came to do. It says in John 3.35, the Father loves the Son and has given what? Might not be able to see it. All things. Has given all things into His hands. What is Jesus's? All things. There's no crevice of the earth, no crevice of the universe, no small little corner of your heart in which God is not fully king and authority over. When you hit that rewind button and you go play right through the book of Luke, you see he has authority over the wind and the waves. He just speaks and they stop. He has authority over sickness. People who have had sickness for years upon years and he just speaks and they're healed or he just touches and they are set free. He has authority over people's weariness. As you begin to see weary person after weary person trust in him and begin to find freedom. He has authority over shame because when you watch that woman who was bowed at his feet, washing his feet with her hair, and he says, your sins are forgiven. He's got authority over sin itself. Authority to forgive. He has authority to save sinners. He has authority, it says, to cast into hell. He has authority to judge the rebellious and to bring judgment. He has authority over death itself because at the end of this book I hate to spoil it for you but he's alive after he died dead in the grave three days 
He had authority over the stone. He had authority over death itself. And he's alive. He was raised. And so over what does he not have authority? The answer Paul gives us in Romans 14, 9. For to this end Christ died and lived again. That means if he died a sinner's death and yet he was perfect. And if three days later he was raised from the dead. This is what that means. That means that he is Lord both of the dead and of the living. He is Lord over everything. He is authority over all flesh. There is nothing over which he is not authoritative. So when you come to the end of the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 28, 18 through 20, he says this, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I have all authority because I obeyed perfectly my father. I died a sinner's death. I was raised from the grave. All authority is mine. And so I command you with that authority. For my glory and your joy, I command you. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. He has the authority to command. And behold, he says, look at it. I'm with you to the end of the age. That's what his authority means. I am over everything and I am with you where my authority reigns. What does that do for us? It's one thing to just know everything that I just said is true. Some of you don't believe that. But some of you, even if you do, what does it matter in your life? I want to put forward before you that it gives such great confidence because if he is over everything and he promises that his death and resurrection means that he will dwell with sinners and never forsake them, never leave them, then you have all the confidence you need that you are never alone. You will never be abandoned. You are never operating solo. He is always with you. And so, all of a sudden, it opens the door to boldness. It opens the door to risk. It opens the door to be faithful in everything because he's setting the lines. He's describing the boundaries and he's saying, I am with you. There is no safer place than where God is. And he promises he is with you. When you walk with Him, He is with you. He does not forsake you. Henry Martin, a great missionary, he says, I am immortal until God's plans for me are done. It is a confidence that if He has authority over every crevice of my life and every corner of the universe, then I have a confidence that the safest place for me to be is with my Savior. To trust in His authority. Safety is knowing He is authoritative. Think about it. It makes sense. If you're fighting in a war, one of the greatest comforts is that you have a fort. You have walls like this all the way around you because you know the boundaries. You know who's in is safe, who's on the outside is an enemy, and all of a sudden you have a sense of clarity. And those boundaries give you a sense of confidence on what the mission is. But when there are no walls, no boundaries, no borders, then you really only have two options. Run like crazy because you don't know where the enemies are coming from. And second option is to be afraid. Always looking over your shoulder. And this is what happens when we choose to go against God's authority. Not live within His boundaries and within His walls. One is we run. And I've seen it time and time again. And sadly, I have lived it. When I try to run and control my own life, it feels right and it feels like it's working. Only to lead me to massive exhaustion. 
and then frustration because I can't control everything. I don't know what the right decision is. I don't know how to walk because I'm trying to do it all on my own. And then what happens is fear begins to set in because I don't understand the boundaries. I'm not living in light of God's authority. I'm living under my authority. And I tell you this, that's a bad place to live. It's one that will terrify you. It is one that will fill you with anxiety. And I've seen it crush person after person. That God is authority. and When you reject Him, it has massive consequences for you. But when you accept that, it will bring such a freedom, such a confidence, such a comfort. I was reading in Psalm 147 this week as I was spending time with Jesus. And as I was looking at Psalm 147 and thinking about this sermon today, I began to think that Sometimes the hardest people to find comfort in the midst of God's authority are those who are broken hearted. Those who are wounded. Those who feel as if they're really sad. Things on the outside have crushed them and hurt them. And they're trying to figure out where do I find hope in the midst of my pain. And I want to put forward to you that because God is authority. Because He is in control. That that is one of the most comforting things you could ever have and ever find. And I found it. And what I felt were maybe some unlikely verses in Psalm 147. I want you to listen to these verses as I read them. And I want you to see how they're put together. And maybe you'll be as puzzled as I am as to why these first two verses stand next to each other. Psalm 147 verses 3 through 5 say this. Our God heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. Verse 4. He determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. I felt that was odd. Broken hearted. I feel wounded. Now let's have an astrology lesson. Like really? It's a little weird. I'm hurting. I mean take the image. Broken heart. How else? What other image would you use to describe a pain that no kind of ointment or medicine or anything can touch? You can't have surgery for, to fix a broken heart. It's a sense of the emotional concentration of the heart. It, it's right here. And the only way you know how to describe it is I feel like I'm broken inside. And the idea of a wound, when someone hurts you so deeply, what other way to describe it is there than something where you are cut open and you are bleeding? It is a deep pain. And then he tells us that he knows the numbers of the stars. He's determined them. Like, it's like, almost like, do you know, I'm hurting over here, and now you tell me about the sky here. What's going on? And as I began to look at that, it made so much sense. Because what happens when someone is broken hearted and they feel deeply wounded? They are tempted to doubt that God is able or that He is willing to help them in their hurt. And so what does He say? What does He say to the one who is broken hearted? To the one who says, is He really able he says this, just look up. What you need in your broken heart is to look up. You need to be pulled outside of all of the pain and you need to see something bigger than yourself. Healing comes from seeing His greatness. I want you to look up and I want you to know there's not one star that you will look at that I have not put there. And no matter how many scientists go, and over thousands of years, they keep discovering more. And as they discover that star, and as they feel like they get there, they name it. And then they see, oh, on the backside, it's bigger. There's more that I don't know. And God's saying, no matter how much you discover, no matter how much you try to get to the end, I've determined it all, and I've got all the names. 
he is trying to comfort us that his authority is so big that that's how big his comfort is as well. And what you don't maybe understand is that Psalm 147 is the conclusion to the book of the Psalms. 145 to 150, it's like the end of the story. And it is all pointing to the fact that one is going to come who will make all wrongs right and who will die in the place of sinners. His name is Jesus. And here's what I want you to hear. Brokenhearted. Jesus knows what it's like to have his heart broken by those who even said they loved him. And our story today, just two days later, they are praising him and rejoicing in him. Four days after that, they're going to kill him. Jesus knows what it's like to be betrayed. He knows what it's like to be wounded deep down. And yet, because he trusted his father, he was obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, for those very people who would break his heart. So, three days later, God raises him from the dead to say the same power over the stars is the same power over death. Now, brokenhearted person, take both of these and find comfort. Here it is. His authority is so great and so powerful, he is able to comfort you to a depth that no one else can. And his understanding is beyond measure because he walked the very road in your place. So you come to verse 5 and he says, Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. As we were singing that song up there, it said, In my hurt, at my worst, when my world falls down, not for a moment will he forsake you. That's what his authority means. Because he is over everything, not for one moment will he forsake you. He loves you with that authority, with that power. But not only is he establishing his authority, but he's laying out that there are consequences for rejecting his authority. And that leads us into verses 9 through 18. There are consequences for rejecting his authority. So, Make sure you follow verses 1 to 8. He's saying, all authority is mine. And now he's saying, you will either receive that or reject it. And so he tells a story about those who reject his authority. Look at verse 9. He began to tell the people this parable. It says, a man planted a vineyard. So there's someone over the vineyard. That is God. And he led it out to tenants. And went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Now let's stop and make sure that we understand the story. The man is over the vineyard. It's his vineyard. Who is that? It's a picture of God himself. There are tenants in the vineyard. Well, the reason he uses vineyard is because in the Old Testament, Israel is called the people of the vine. They are the vineyard. And so, who are the tenants of the vineyard? They are the people of Israel who have the opportunity now to receive the Messiah or to reject him. What will they do? God sends servants to them. That might be the prophets long ago who were God's messenger to these people over and over to embrace God himself, to follow him with all of their heart. What will they do when the prophets come? We see it, don't we? Verse 10, But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. So he sent another servant. Verse 11, But they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent a third. This one also they wounded and cast out, as if to say... I have over and over repeatedly pursued you to follow me. Pursued you with my love. Pursued you with my mercy. I have not given up on you. I have kept putting before you everything you need to find peace in me. But you keep rejecting me. You see that? So what's he going to do? Write him off? Instead, he sends his beloved son. Look at what it says. Verse 13. 
Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I'll send the greatest love of my life. My only son. The beloved son. Perhaps, perhaps they will respect him. Verse 14. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, Hey, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And now before we move on to their response, make sure you understand something. Just because he gave to his people authority over everything around them, who was still in charge? The owner of the vineyard. God himself was still in charge. Even though there's tons of authority all around. God is still the ultimate authority. And so. He has authority to do with his people. What is best. And so. He says. He will come verse 16. And destroy those tenants. That is destroy those who have rejected him. And he will give the vineyard to others who would receive him. And when they heard this, they said, surely not. You can hear the Jewish people saying, surely he won't go against us. Our ethnicity alone protects us. No. It's faith alone in Jesus that is your safety net. And Jesus said to them, and I can't imagine the terrifying nature of this look. He says, verse 17, but he looked directly at them. Because they were the leaders who were leading people astray. And he looked directly at them. And he used what they should have already known. Honestly, what they were able to recite. It's Psalm 118. And he says, well, then what is written when it says, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. What is it? What's the stone? Jesus Christ the Messiah, whom the builders, that is the Jewish people, have rejected. God comes in, takes that stone, puts it down, and says, I will build a people upon that stone, upon Jesus. Whether you reject me or not, I will have a people for my name. Now the question is, will you find yourself rejecting him or receiving him? This passage, Psalm 118, is interpreted by Jesus in verse 18. And he says, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. There is the promise of judgment For those who reject Jesus. On that last day. You will not be able to present. Your good deeds to outweigh your bad deeds. And escape the wrath that is to come. On that last day. You will only escape that judgment. By faith alone. Although all of our deeds will be exposed before God and everyone, what is good and what is bad, on that last day you will not be able to stand saying, my good outweighed my bad. Because that's not the standard. The standard is perfection. And all of us are crushed under that weight. And so the only hope is to lean and trust in the one upon whom that weight will not crush. And it is Jesus Christ because he was perfect. Perfect in our place. So our only hope on that last day is not look at how good I am. It is I trust in the goodness, in the righteousness of another, Jesus Christ himself. And that's my only hope for being with you. And God will look and say, I accept you because you've trusted in my lovely son. I accept you because you have leaned your life upon him as imperfect as you are. I accept you because by his Holy Spirit, you are producing the fruit that he requires. Imperfectly though you did, I see your trust in me. 
But for those who do not trust in Him, but trust in their own authority, judgment will come. And they will be rightly punished for their rejection. And so Peter says, there's only two other times that this passage is quoted. We have it here in Luke. We have it by Peter in Acts 4. And then we have it by Peter again in 1 Peter chapter 2. Listen to what Peter says to them. Acts chapter 4 verses 8 through 12. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders. Now here's what you need to understand. Peter was just arrested for healing someone in the name of Jesus. And remember, the religious leaders didn't like the name of Jesus. So he says, If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to you, to all of you, and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is, and here's the verse, the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone upon which all of life is built. And here's one of my most favorite passages in the scripture. And there is rescue, salvation, deliverance in no one else. There's no other name. No other relationship you could get in that can do what this relationship, what this name can do. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus is the authority upon which we got to give our lives. And so, how are we rejecting him? What's interesting is our rejection sometimes is just I want nothing to do with him. As a general way of life. Maybe you've never seen his beauty and never fallen at his feet for salvation. But for others of you, rejection is slow. It's moment by moment. It's piece by piece. And then you wonder how the foundation got eroded. You wonder how things got sideways all of a sudden. Please, do not discount small indifferences to God. I'll say it again. Do not discount small indifferences to God because it will open a breach into the world that will get wider and wider and will end up collapsing your very heart. Here's what I mean. Some of us call it freedom. To spend our money with no regard for God. It's my money ultimately. It's rejection. Of God. Freedom to watch with no regard for God, saying, It won't affect me. Freedom to treat others as I want to treat them, with no regard for the boundaries that God has set, or even asking what love looks like. They're all subtle rejections. We say, Freedom to use my body as I wish, with no regard for God's purposes for your body. Or freedom in decision making with little to no thought. Of him at all. We just make them. But what we don't see. Is each one of those steps. Is a hardness of heart. It is a rejecting him. It is trying to segment him. And yes it feels free. To be your own boss. But it is an eroding foundation. That will lead to massive collapse. I found this on YouTube the other day. It's a building in Philippines. These people are running out of what was their apartment building, this big tall building here on the left, because they started hearing some massive creaking. And as they did, they evacuated the whole building only to watch this happen. It hit power lines, the building across the street, and just crumbled. Why did that happen? It was people's homes. They lived there for years. Because there was no proper attention to the foundation. It looked fine. The top looked fine. Their rooms looked fine. But because there was no attention to the foundation, 
the life collapsed. And I tell you, we cannot be okay with small indifferences. For the scripture says, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. There is a command upon us to live within the boundaries that God has given us for our good and for His fame. They are not there to unnecessarily restrict you. They are actually there to provide safety and clarity. But we live our lives with these subtle rejections. And I want to tell you, sadly I have seen how that leads, that freedom leads to a cover up for evil rather than a freedom lived to serve God. That's what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 3. He says this, live as people who are free. Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as slaves or servants of God Himself. Are you going to reject His authority? The authority that He has established? Or will you submit to Him and follow Him? So this is where we find ourselves. The first part of the passage taught us Jesus has all authority. The second part of the passage tells us the consequences for rejecting his authority. But I told you that this passage that is quoted here by Jesus in Psalm 118, it appears here, it appears in Acts 4, and it appears in 1 Peter chapter 2. And it's there that Peter tells us the joys of submitting to God's authority. This is February, it's Black History Month. And I strongly encourage you not only to look at the contributions to society, but the contributions to the Christian church by our black brothers and sisters who have walked in faithfulness and submitted their lives to God. I'm so thankful how my life has been shaped by so many black men and women. And there was one, I just finished his biography, his name is John Perkins. He just finished a book at age 86, it's called Dream With Me. John Perkins was born in the 30s, and therefore the height of his life was the height of the civil rights movement. John Perkins' mom died at seven months old. He remembers himself running around yelling for his mom and his cousins telling him to shut up because his mom had died. His dad then therefore remarried but did not want to raise him. So he was raised by his grandmother and yet he would still go and visit his dad every now and then. And he tells a story when he goes to visit his dad one time they went to the store and his dad had to sign for what he had just purchased and when he did all he could do was put an X. He didn't know how to write his name and he didn't know how to read. These are the tragedies of poverty and of racism, is they create inequity. They don't give equal access. By no fault of his own, he had no access to learn how to read. And so John Perkins lived with no mom and an absentee dad. Raised by his grandmother, and it was in third grade when, in order to make ends meet, you do what you have to do. And he became a sharecropper. And so what was more important in that moment was the field rather than the schoolhouse. And so at third grade, he quit his education because that was the only way to make ends meet. So he stopped at a third grade education. In order to make it. He tells a story though. As he was in his teenage years. Of when his dad. And when his brother came home from the war. World War II. Fighting against the racism of Adolf Hitler. And he comes home a fully decorated. African American soldier. Only to find that when he goes to a drive in movie. A few months after he had returned. They were playing their music loud. And they were laughing and having a good time. The police officer didn't like that. And they told him to shut his mouth and 
he couldn't hear because it was loud. Officer was far away. Comes up, pulls the gun up, and holds it right at him and pulls the trigger and shoots him. And because he was in such an impoverished town and there was no ambulance to come and pick him up, he had to get his brother's limp body and put it in a car and drive 50 minutes to the nearest hospital. But before they got there, he was holding his brother who had died. But John Perkins' own personal story was led to a massive apex of what is he going to do with his life when he was peacefully protesting and he was arrested by a white police officer and he was taken to the jail and he was beaten and tortured and he describes in detail about what happened to him in his life. And because we have kids in this room, I will not describe it, but I promise you it would make you sick to your stomach. Not only because of the racism, but because of the physical abuse. And he remembers laying on that floor bloodied when he says this. On that night I witnessed the evil of racism and experienced the full force of what it could do. At first I viewed these white people as deranged animals, maggots in a bowl. If an atomic grenade had been available to me I would have pulled off the pen and thrown it at them. But then a moment came when I feared what I saw in myself and what I was capable of doing. I felt that if I responded with violence, I was no better than they were. I came face to face with the truth that we are all broken and that the solution was not violence or retaliation, but love. And then in my brokenness, I said to God, if you get me out of this jail, he means alive, I will preach your love and your gospel in a way that allows me to claim forgiveness, but also in a way that allows me to forgive those who did this to me. Only moments after it was done to him. And he says, remembering God's grace in forgiving me for my own sins helped me find a place of forgiveness even in that heinous situation. He was at a crossroads. Would he reject Jesus and embrace racism and hatred and bitterness, which almost everybody in the world would say, that's what you should do? Or at that crossroads, would he say, although I don't know how it's going to happen, I'm going to embrace the forgiveness of Christ to me and I will be a reconciler. I will be a forgiver. At that moment, he believed Jesus Christ had all authority in heaven and on earth and he submitted to God's authority over his life and he has been used for the rest of his life as a spokesperson into white and black and Hispanic and multi-ethnic context to speak a message of reconciliation. At age 86, John Perkins, no mom, absentee dad, raised by his grandmother, no, no education past third grade, he now has founded the Christian Community Development Association. This association is the framework which many Christians who want to be a blessing in low-income communities use, built upon reconciliation, redistribution, and relocation. His three R's. And it's a grid through which many use to view how does you extend the love of Jesus into communities where the love of Jesus is not seen. He also founded the John and Vera May. His wife's name was Vera May. The John and Vera May Perkins Foundation for Reconciliation and Justice in Jackson, Mississippi. He is an internationally known speaker and activist. He has authored tons of books. And one is in the top 50 books of evangelical Christianity called Let Justice Roll Down. And after his wife passed away, who was his best friend, he says, I've seen him holding this man's hand. He says, this man right here, a white man named Wayne Gordon, this man's my best friend. Oh, what God can do when we submit our lives wholly to him. Rather than embracing the narrative that the world wants us to. 
that subtle rejections don't matter. Oh, they do. I don't want to see you collapse. I want to see you thrive. And what is beautiful about 1 Peter chapter 2 is he tells us, what does it look like to submit to God's authority? He uses this verse to tell us what it looks like to submit to God's authority. And so finally, I want to just have you look at it real quickly. It says this, 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 2, like newborn infants. Many times in the scriptures when he calls us infants, he's calling us immature, not here. Here, he wants you to think about a baby. And what's characteristic of the baby is that they long to eat from their mother's milk. They want that. That's the greatest desire they have in all the planet. And so he says, what does it mean to submit to God's authority? Long for the pure spiritual milk, that is, of the word of God, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. And I ask you, have you tasted that the Lord is good? That is atrocious. I ask you, have you tasted that the Lord is good? Okay, good night. He is good. He is good all the time. And many of you would not have a smile on your face if you did not know the risen Christ invading your life. I have seen you overcome sins. I have seen marriages mended. I have seen you have hope in the midst of your despair. I have seen him show up at the 11th hour because he has overcome the grave and he has overcome your hardness of heart and he has taken up residence right here and he has said, I have all authority over you and that's where you're going to find the greatest joy. Friends, have you tasted that the Lord is good? Yes, you have. It is worth shouting over. It is worth celebrating over because there is victory in Jesus Christ. This is not a rally session. This is not a rah-rah session. This is fact. Jesus Christ is alive and there is victory to be had every day. No matter the broken heart, he is with you and where he is, there is victory. I promise you this. He says, what does it look like to walk in submission to God's authority? It is to long to be with him. To be in his word and to not reject him moment by moment. And so he says, as you come to him, you're a living stone. This building I'm building, it's alive. It's built with flesh, not just bricks and mortar. And it's built upon this foundational stone that is Jesus Christ himself as the cornerstone. And he said... You yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to care about how you live, to obey in all you do. And he goes on to say, verse 7 of 1 Peter, So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Oh friends, will you believe in him and not be put to shame, or will you reject him he promises joy for those who do not reject him so I was going to end the service or the sermon a little differently and then I got a text this morning I got a text from Paul Sarazen Paul Sarazen used to be a pastor here at Treasuring Christ Church and he is one of the funniest people on the planet I love my brother And he sent this text. He said, good morning, y'all. He's country boy. In many years at TCC, I watched the Cowboys and the Steelers win a lot. Those are football teams for those of you who do not follow NFL. But he says, I have never got to say, go Eagles, win the Super Bowl. Today's finally the day. So he pleads, can I count you all in as honorary Eagles fans for a day. Join me, he says. And then he starts naming names. Jeremy Maxwell, whose wife was wearing a Patriots jersey today. (laughs) Join me, Jeremy Maxwell, and many others across this land as we stand against the dark forces of the Patriots and their minions. (laughs) And then, no spaces, just the next sentence. He goes, all Jesus on us. I hope you all have an awesome morning worshiping at TCC. 
It's incredible that we stand before God in Christ now as alive and whole and welcomed and clean and loved and accepted and free to obey. And I was just like, that's what God gives us. The ability to enjoy his gifts and the ability to laugh with one another and the ability to herald our great Savior. That was amazing. And then he said this. He said, please tell the Toscanos and Sean Doherty I said hello. Which, they're all Patriots fans, so he's trying to rub it into them. Now, Travis, our, our beloved pastor presently, along with other pastors, we have another pastor named Hunter. Um, we also have Byron and Gladman, but Hunter and Travis are, are the context of this ridicule. Uh, Travis says this, I love me some Paul. This is his response. I also love the fact that the Eagles seem to be most publicly, the most publicly Christian team in the NFL. But Hunter, who is bald, he says this, but Hunter's hair will grow full and shaggy before I ever cheer for my rivals, the Eagles. Go Patriots. And that's how he ends the text. And so I just hold out before you that God is able to bring Patriots and Eagles fans under the same roof to worship God together. He's able to overcome all kinds of barriers. And I end with this. Because he has all authority over every single crevice of the universe and of your heart, the consequences are clear. They're clear for what rejection means, but the rewards could not be clearer for submitting to his authority. So I'll repeat what Paul said. Not the Apostle Paul, but Paul Sarazen, my dear friend. It's incredible that we stand before God in Christ now as alive, whole, welcomed, clean, loved, accepted, and free to obey. And I add, praise the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I praise you for who you are. I praise you for your mercy. I praise you for your love. And I ask you, O oh God, to come. I ask you to come and to change us from the inside out. I ask you, O oh God, to move so that we would not see our lives collapse and we would not be found as those who reject you. But Father, I pray that even the smallest things we would submit to your mighty hand and we would say, I want to follow you in every part of my life. And so Father, please, May we experience the joy of submitting to your authority. And may we rehearse over and over what so many fail to see and what sometimes we fail to remember, that you have all authority. And therefore, because you have all authority, you have all the power to change us, to change those around us, and you have full understanding to comfort us in our broken heart. And so, Father, I ask that as we take this Lord's Supper, we would rehearse what you have done. You have made us alive. You have made so many in this room whole. You have accepted us. You have washed us clean. You have loved us deeper and more consistently than anyone else. And you have freed us up to live in the boundaries that you give us for our good and safety and joy. Father, please, fill our mouths with praise. And so in this moment, we're going to take the Lord's Supper as a form of prayer. There's two tables in the front and one in the back. When you are ready, you can get up from your seat. If you are a follower of Jesus and you believe salvation is found in no one else under heaven, there's no other name given among men by which you may be saved and you submit your life to him, then this meal is for you. And when you get that bread in the cup and you go back to your seat or you stay up front and you spend time praying, wherever you are, you take that moment and you look backwards at his amazing forgiveness and you thank him. 
And you look in the moment now and you ask him to expose and uproot whatever sin has gripped the heart and you confess it. And then you look forward to a life of forgiveness, a life where he will not leave you nor forsake you. A life that will end with eternal life with him after the grave. And you celebrate. But if you're not a follower of Jesus, this meal is not for you, but this time is for you to to really do some serious heart consideration. Will you reject him and experience those consequences? Will you live under your own authority or will you submit your life to his authority? Even though you fully don't understand, he invites you today to say, Jesus, I am tired. I'm tired of being my own authority. I'm tired of trying to fix my own life. I want to submit my life and surrender my life wholly to you. Would you please change me and forgive me? So wherever you find yourself, this Lord's Supper time is for us all. But for those of faith, let's take the Lord's Supper and worship Him.